0: The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca.
1: Before we open the word, let us ask for a blessing. Heavenly Father, as we prepare... To hear your word read and spoken, we ask for a blessing, Lord. We ask that you will open our hearts, our, our eyes, our ears, our minds to hear, to see, to understand. Lord, we ask that you will bless Dr. Walters as he expounds on this for us this morning. We ask this not because we are worthy, but because we are your children. In the strong name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Scripture reading this morning, if you choose to follow along in your pew Bible, uh, comes to us from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 18, and you can find that on page... 1,757, Romans chapter 8, reading through to the end of verse 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that in the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time not only so but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we are saved but hope that is seen is no hope at all who hopes for what he already has if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Dear people of God, I was born in 1942 in the Netherlands, which at that time was under German occupation. In that same year, a Dutch Reformed pastor by the name of Jan Kars, who had been involved with the Dutch underground, was arrested by the Germans. While in prison, he ministered to his fellow inmates, including socialists and communists, And one day, he was informed that he had been condemned to death by the German authorities. He was to be executed that same day at 2 p.m. in the afternoon by firing squad. He was given the opportunity to write a letter to his family before he died. The last lines of that letter read as follows. Goodbye, my loved ones, until eternity before God. Goodbye, my precious ones. May God give eternal peace. May he be close to you. Do not grieve as those who have no hope. Your loving husband and father, Jan. Some time ago, I came across this story in an ad for a biography of the Reverend Kars, which was recently published in Dutch. And I was particularly struck by those closing words, do not grieve as those who have no hope, because I was planning to do a sermon on the theme of Christian hope. I thought it would be fitting to remind ourselves that our whole lives as Christians is characterized by hope, the positive expectation of good things to come grounded in God's own promises to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. When Rev. Cuss, in that last letter to his wife and children in 1942, tells them not to grieve as those who have no hope, he is alluding to 1 Thessalonians 4.13, where we read as follows, Brothers, we we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope." That verse clearly says that the thing which distinguishes Christians is that they have hope, a positive outlook for the future, even in the face of death. It can be a useful exercise for us as Christians, especially at the, at the time around the beginning of a new year, to take stock of our lives to reflect on how our lives have been led in recent months and in the past year, and to ponder what the future may bring. This is true of us both as congregations and families, but also as individuals. As we look back, we remember much in our personal lives, both joys and sorrows. As individuals, perhaps we have had graduations and professional achievements, recovery from illness, newfound love, and newfound faith exciting new opportunities, new insights perhaps, but also great personal challenges, health problems that did not go away, babies that were not born, jobs that were lost, cutbacks that had to be made, marital bonds that dissolved, children that were alienated from the faith, and much more. But the Bible encourages us to look at all of these things, all of these life's experiences, whether positive or negative, through the lens of Christian hope. One place where the Bible speaks of this hope is in the passage we have just heard read, especially the last two verses. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we, if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Before looking a bit more closely at this specific text, let me first make two points in general about the biblical idea of hope. The first point is that the word hope in the Bible has a different meaning from the way we ordinarily use the word in common parlance in our own language. The way we normally talk about hope is that it is a wish about the future. A person may say that he hopes to win the lottery, but that that just means that he wishes that it will happen, but he recognizes that it's a pretty long shot. Someone may ask you whether the blue, someone may Ask you whether the Blue Jays will win the World Series this year, year, and you might reply, Well, I hope so, but I don't really expect it. This is where the biblical notion of hope is quite different. In the New Testament, the Greek word for hope is elpis. Elpis. And in that word that Paul uses, that's the word that Paul uses in our text, incidentally. I used to teach Greek at Redeemer College, and the students used to kind of laugh when they learned this Greek word, elpis, as though it were a Spanish word for something quite different. <laughs> when Paul uses the word elpis, it means not just a wish that something will happen in the future, but also an assurance, an assurance that it will happen. Accordingly, in many places, a better translation might be expectation. The Standard Dictionary of New Testament Greek gives the following definition for elpis, the looking forward to something with some reason for confidence, respecting fulfillment, hope, expectation. So it's not just a, a vague wish for the future but an expectation, an assurance that something really will happen. When we understand this about the biblical word for hope, we also understand how Paul can say a few chapters earlier in Romans 5, verse 5, hope does not disappoint. The kind of hope that expresses a wish to win the lottery will often disappoint. But biblical hope isn't like that. This understanding also gives deeper meaning to the song we often sing, All Our Hope Is In You, and we'll sing that after the sermon. The second point I wanted to make is that hope is often mentioned in conjunction with faith and love. For example, at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, the famous chapter on love, we read the words, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And we find the same threesome mentioned in five other places in the New Testament. Another one is 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. I quote, We continually remembered before God and our Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. When when we think of what it means to be a Christian, we we readily think of faith and love because we know that we are justified by faith alone and that the Christian life is all about love, love for God above all and our neighbor as ourselves. But we usually don't think of hope as having that same standing, that same central position in the Christian life. Yet the Bible repeatedly puts hope on a par with faith and love. When you stop to think about it, there is actually a close connection between hope and faith. Faith is to take God at His word, to trust Him for our salvation. But hope is also to take Him at His word. In this case, a word about the future. In short, hope is to trust God's promises. If God says He will do something for us in the future, even if it seems very unlikely, and we see no present evidence that supports this promise, hope is to believe Him anyway, to expect Him with full assurance to come through on His commitment. Even though we know that our bodies will disintegrate in the grave and that it is scientifically impossible for a dead person to come to life again, Nevertheless, we have a sure, grounded hope in the resurrection. That's not just wishful thinking or pie in the sky. It is a firm conviction based on God's own word that he will bring us to life again with a renewed and healthy body on the new earth. Hope is at the core of the Christian faith. So. Armed with these two thoughts, that Christian hope is really a confident expectation, and that this kind of confident expectation is on a par with faith and love, let's turn back to the passage in Romans 8 that we read together. Now, Romans 8 is, of course, a favorite chapter of the Bible for many Christians, especially because of its well-known ending which speaks about the fact that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. I remember reading that concluding passage to my friend and colleague Bernie Zylstra just before he died in 1986, and how he kidded me about not finding a more original passage to read to him. But nevertheless, he included it in the liturgy which he and his wife planned for his funeral. Another part of that concluding passage is verse 27, where after quoting Psalm 44, for, for for your sake we face death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, the apostle writes, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I once had a student in my Greek class at Redeemer. Some of you may remember him, Stephen Cowanhoven who visited me with his mother not long before he died of cancer in 1988. And I wrote out that verse on a card for him, writing in Greek the words, for we are more than conquerors, literally, we are super victorious. And he chose that verse for his funeral service. So that's all with reference to the end of chapter 8 of Romans, which is very, very treasured by many of us. But the middle part of Romans 8 is also very well-known and well-loved. It speaks of the dramatic contrast between the world in which we now live, with its suffering and its death and its decay, and the glorious future which awaits us. It is a glorious future not only of the children of God, but of the entire creation itself. Listen again to what the apostle says in verses 19 to 21. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of him who subjected it In hope, notice those words, in hope that creation itself will be delivered from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. In other words, hope is central, it's integral to the destiny of the cosmos. All of world history, in fact, all of cosmic history, is moving to its appointed eschatological end in a a glorious future that God has promised to us. That's not a pipe dream. It's a sure thing. We have God's word on it. We live in hope. Then the apostle goes on with his magnificent depiction of the human condition indeed the condition of all things in the universe and of the future that awaits us with these words in verses 22 to 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The whole cosmos is pictured as being like a woman giving birth to a child, with the intense pain of childbirth being compared to the sufferings of the present dispensation and the expected child being compared to the glorious future. What a dramatic picture of cosmic hope, of confident expectation, that present suffering will give way in the promised future of unimaginable glory. Now, we're all aware of the challenge of global warming and of the ecological crisis of our day. We see something of the groaning of creation in the massive pollution of the environment of our day, the widespread extinction of biological species, and the mortal threat to our very existence posed by global warming. But of course, the groaning of creation is not limited to the physical and biological degradation that we see all around us today, nor even to the dramatic excesses of the last few decades or centuries. The groaning of creation refers to all the ways in which God's good created order is warped and distorted including all areas of human culture and civilization. It is from that entire range of sinful perversion of the world, which God originally intended for the flourishing of the human community, that we hope, that is to say, that we confidently expect to be delivered according to God's promise. Finally, we turn to the words of our actual text. Verses 24 to 25. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope, is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet, what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. What remarkable words. For in this hope, we are saved. Our very salvation is bound up with this hope, the expectation that God will deliver on his promises about what's going to happen. There really is a glorious future awaiting us. And indeed, the whole cosmos, even though the world as we experience it today, in in so many ways is depleted, degraded, abused, perverted, and in general twisted out of its God-ordained shape. In that fallen world, which is nevertheless God's good creation with its many blessings, we are called to live in hope. But hope that is seen is no hope at all, says the apostle. For biblical hope to be hope at all its object must be hidden. If the object of your hope is right before your eyes, it does not require any faith or trust to be, a, to be confident that it is really coming. That's the thing about biblical hope. You have, you have to hold on to it when you have no empirical evidence that, in, that in, it is, in fact, coming. You have to take it on trust. It's like the famous definition of faith that we find in Hebrews 11. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. There's a sense that we have to blindly trust the way a child will trustily allow herself to fall backwards into her father's arms. Rather than trust our own senses or our own reason, We must trust the assurances of our Father. And that can be hard because if we hope for an unseen future, this means that we have to wait patiently. As our text says, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. But the word patiently here does not mean with resignation. As though we must fatalistically, fatalistically accept what we cannot change, but the Greek word says literally "with perseverance." It implies actively holding on in faith, even in the teeth of empirical evidence. Remember the verse from First Thessalonians, which I quoted earlier, which speaks of your endurance, inspired by hope. Hope calls for endurance or perseverance. Christ promised promised that he would return, and the early Christians believed that he would probably— this would probably happen in their own lifetimes. But it didn't happen. Already in New Testament times, the apostle Peter talks about scoffers who mocked the Christian hope and said, where is this coming? that he promised. That was back in the first century, and now we're living in the 21st century, and it still hasn't happened. We are called to wait with active perseverance despite appearances. But it can be difficult to hope without seeing. One of the ways in which the Lord helps us is by giving us partial glimpses already now, of the future which he has promised us. In the letter to the Hebrews, he speaks of the reality, sorry, in the letter to the Hebrews, the reality of experiencing the, the future now is referred to as tasting the powers of the coming age. Right now, already in our lives today, we can taste, we can experience, the powers which are to come in the the great restoration. So the great eschaton of the future is already present in the present as an encouragement for us today to hope. And in the second letter of the Apostle Peter, this is referred to as the hastening of the coming of the day of the Lord by living holy and godly lives. So we today, by living holy and godly lives, hasten, we speed up, we may come more quickly that promised eschatological future. Every time that we experience examples of the good creation as God intended us, as as God intended it to function, we are encouraged. And our hope is strengthened that it will all be ultimately restored in the new heavens and the new earth. Every deed of kindness and love every act for justice and creation care, every signpost of the coming kingdom helps us to hope with perseverance. As we face the future, both as a congregation and as individuals, we know that it is likely that our lives will be touched by death. We ourselves may die, and the people that are close to us also may die. I myself am in my late 70s now and probably don't have many more years to live. That's what life is like in the fallen creation. But we will not grieve as those who have no hope. Instead, we will grieve as those who do have hope. As it says in the letter to the Hebrews, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And together with our grieving in hope, we will also rejoice in hope at all the promising signs that continue to encourage us from year to year. The births, the baptisms, the weddings, the graduations, the professions of faith, and all the ways in which our lives are characterized by hope and we realize something of the glorious future which God has promised to us. And and we will do this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, of whom we confess that all our hope is in you. To that, let all God's people say, Amen. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you for the encouraging words of the apostle. Please strengthen our wavering hope. Help us in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of all the evidence of decay and frustration that we see in the creation around us. But nevertheless, we have the sure promise of a full restoration, of a glorious future. And help us also as we ourselves as individuals, as our bodies break down, as we know that we are moving toward death, all of us individually that you will nevertheless encourage us by good things and that we may be firmly rooted in your promise of a glorious future. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.